Thanks for listening to this episode of PageCast, proudly brought to you by Jonathan Ball Publishers. Today's book, Coloured by Tessa Dooms and Lindsay Chattel, has been selected as News24's Book of the Month. Coloured as an ethnicity and racial demographic is intertwined in the creation of the South Africa we have today. Yet often, coloured communities are disdained as people with no clear heritage or culture, not being black enough or white enough. The book Coloured challenges this notion and presents a different angle to that narrative as it delves into the history of coloured people as descendants of indigenous Africans and a people whose identity was shaped by colonisation, slavery and the racial political hierarchy it created. Although rooted in difficult history, this book is also about the culture that coloured communities have created for themselves through music, food and lived experiences in communities such as Eldorado Park, Easteris and Wentworth. Coloured culture is an act of defiance and resilience. In this episode of PageCast, authors Tessa Dooms and Lindsay Chattel chat with one another. Happy Heritage Month. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Tessa Dooms. I'm here with my co-author of our book, Coloured, How Classification Became Culture, Lindsay Ebony Chutal. So Lindsay and I are going to have a chat about our book, just introducing the book to you and introducing the idea about why this book was written, but also giving you some insights into what's in the book and why we hope it will make a contribution to conversations about identity. Lindsay, how are you doing? Hi, Tessa. How are you doing? I thought since this is the first time that we're both um, authors and it's the first time that we're on the PageCast podcast, I thought that we should introduce ourselves. So in your best elevator pitch, please tell the PageCast listeners who you are and what you do. All right. So um, I'm Tessa Dooms. I'm firstly a Dooms child. And so I come from a really close-knit family and engaged family, but also a complex family. And part of that is in the book, so I won't spoil too much about that. Um, I'm a child of Aldo's, which means I was born and raised in Eldorado Park and proudly so. And again, part of that is part of the reason why I'm writing this book. But um, Aldo's raised me is what I always say. But in my professional life, I'm an activist. Um, I've spent my, a lot of my time in youth development work over the years, and um, I've moved into governance um, work. So I'm the director of programs of the Ravonia Circle. So I spend my time encouraging people to get more politically active, get more um, active in governance and democracy work, even if they're not in politics formally. So that's why I am. Lindsay, who are you? Who am I? So I spend most of my time, my working day as a journalist. I've been a journalist for just over a decade now, mainly. And I, I like to think of myself as a storyteller more than a news junkie. And that what I try to do with my work is that I chase stories. I try and give, because so often I find that when you ask people about their lives, it's the first time that they've had a chance to say who they are, what they're doing, what their favorite thing is. And people will allow you into their homes. So that's my favorite part of the job when people let you get, come sit in their lounge or on their stoop and talk about their lives. But when I'm not being a journalist, I am a kid days between uh, Northern Kozulu Natal and Eldorado Park, like you. So I grew up in Aldo's and I had a, a really lovely childhood in Aldo's. We were playing in the street where I knew my neighbors and my neighbors still know me. My experience of Aldous is quite romanticized. And then my family is from Northern Kozulu Natal, a little town called Utrecht. And so I would spend holidays pretty much on the farm, catching tadpoles and shooting birds, following my grandfather everywhere. And so I have a 
a combination of a rural and urban upbringing, which I think has very much shaped the way I look at the world and the kind of stories that are, and also just my love of history, because that little town was truly stuck in a, in another era. But I wanted to talk about when you and I first, because we, while we both live in Aldo's, neither of us had met in Aldo's or really even ever talked about our backgrounds growing up in Aldo's. Not until a certain moment and when we started writing that book. So tell us about the moment this book came to be. Yeah, the story of this book. So in 2020, a young man, 16-year-old boy really, called Nathaniel Julies, was murdered by the police in Alvarado Park. And I do a lot of work um, in political commentary. And so people started asking me questions in the media about why are colored people so angry? What is going on in colored communities? And I was really confused by the whole thing. And I started realizing how little understanding there is about colored communities and the struggles of colored communities and also how little empathy there was. There just seemed to be this sense that colored communities should feel less aggrieved about the South African situation which in itself was weird. But it was a really emotional time for me. And I ended up doing quite a few radio interviews and television interviews and found myself really emotionally engaged in the whole thing because it was my own community that was under the political spotlight, as it were. And so as part of that, Jonathan Ball, Nganyezi was at Jonathan Ball at the time, you know, picked up the phone and called me and said, would you like to write a book about colored experiences? She'd been hearing what I'd been saying over the last few days. And I would never have called um, Jonathan Bolf particularly, but uh, a publisher with the confidence to ask to write a book. But um, there was a value seen in the weight of that moment and the story that was untold about colored communities. And so instead of saying yes, I said, give me 10 minutes. And then I called you and apparently I instructed you to do the book with me. <laughs> um, but I didn't want to do it alone for many reasons, but also just the weight of it. And you said yes? Yeah, I said yes. In part because I had also started covering the story or did I, was it just being assigned to do it. Yeah, I said yes, because it was you, because we have a, a friendship that spans long before this book. And so, and I trust that you understood the story and we had a similar understanding of the colored community. And also we would be able to wrestle with this with respect and love and, and empathy and justice. And so that's why I said yes without even thinking. But the Nathaniel Julius story in particular, because you must remember this was in 2020 when the world was on fire. It was in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I'd written so many obituaries that year. But there was something about the death of this boy and the anger that it brought about, because this was also linked to the George Floyd killing in the United States. And I was covering as a freelancer for international media. The editors on that site started seeing this hashtag coming about that said, Colored Lives Matter. And of course, the Black Lives Matter movement at this point is going global. You're seeing it in London, you're seeing it in France, you're seeing statues being pulled down. And South Africa, being South Africa, then takes this global thing and makes it particularly local. And editors are saying, well, why on earth are people using this word? And so what had turned into yet another story of a police killing, because I had done a couple more, yet it was just not another obituary, but it was a story about a community and why they were angry and why they were feeling so left out. So that is exactly why this particular story came about. But then the book itself took on such a life of its own because it went from being the catalyst being this police killing to it turning into something that was about the past, the future and the present 
of colored lives in South Africa today. And I think when Tessa and I sat down to plan this, my favorite part of the story is that there were pancakes. Tessa makes fantastic pancakes. When we sat down to plan this, we were very deliberate about the idea that we would talk to real South Africans, real people, and, and feature their stories. And so my favorite parts about the book is the cover and the fact that all those photographs that you see on the cover of the book. And also if you buy the book and you look inside, it's almost like a photo album. It's also the first time people spoke about their stories. And so one of the turning points for me for this book, when we first read the draft, was your story about your father. So Tessa, can you just walk us through your family album and your story about how it became the arc of this particular book? Sure. So this book gave me the opportunity to go to my dad and ask him about how we became colored. And that was because our family has always been a mixed pot of people in terms of identity. You know, my father speaks Tswana, my father's cousins and siblings speak Tswana. Many of my cousins in our generation identify as black and Tswana, not black and colored. And so I knew, I always knew there was a story there. I mean, we've always had this picture of the man who raised my father, his grandfather, Johannes Dooms, who is the son of a man named Theodore Dooms. And Theodore Dooms was this German man who came to South Africa during the First World War and married a Mutswana woman, Mamela, and they created this family that we now know as the Dooms family. So I always knew that there was this kind of variation and diversity within the family. So how did we end up colored? And for the first time at the age of 79, my father tells the story of going to the registration office. And I think in our family now, having spoken to my mother, she didn't have to go to a registration office. She's a bit younger than my father is. So he's the only one who actually had the experience in our household. And he tells about going to school one day and he grew up as a Mutswana boy. He grew up using the name Lusole. That is his primary identity. The apartheid government went to his school, took them as a class to go and get registered. And so arriving there as this Mutswana boy in a Tswana school with a name Lusole, which means soldier in, in Setswana, um, speaking the language, he has dark skin. They classify him as native. And as a child, that makes complete sense to him because that's all he knows about himself. And then he goes home and the family goes, oh, no, we didn't tell you. And as many colored families had done during those times, they had to make decisions about how to classify in order to, number one, you know, gain some of the benefits that could come with the stratified classification. Everybody has an uncomfortableness about those kinds of things, you know, you know, a wider street, a better school, but also ways in which to not damage your family and rip it apart too much. And so people made decisions about how to classify, and that meant how to show up. And so my father needed to show up with an English name, Elliot. And the name Lesole then just, you know, doesn't get used anymore. For almost 60 years plus, my father doesn't use that name at all until I ask about the story. And I realized that my father's nickname, Solly, came from the name Lesole that he had lost in that registration office. And that his journey into becoming and integrating into a colored community of El Dorado Park was him having to reconstruct his whole world and his whole identity after apartheid had basically stripped it away. And it gave me such a, a sense of understanding of the deep, deep, deep destruction and pain. Because I think I used to judge my parents for them not teaching us how to speak Isuzulu, that my mother speaks fluently and Setswana that my father speaks fluently, and teaching us only English and Afrikaans growing up in Aldo's. 
because I was like, we've lost out on, you know, these other parts of our heritage. But my father explains that he did that because of that fear of us also being classified a different way and perhaps being taken away or um, removed from them as parents, decided not to give us the language because he was afraid based on what had happened to him. It gave me a real sense, again, of empathy and an understanding that there was a lot of violence that came with the making of coloredness. And I think you pick up on the difficulties and the difficult decisions that people had to make in the Lucky Colors chapter. Because it's a chapter about hair, but you actually speak a lot about what goes into the decision making and the representation of self in order to fit into the society that's stratified on the basis of what they called race and what eventually we call culture. So maybe you want to just talk about Lucky Colors and the essence of what that meant. Yeah. So I'll start saying what a lucky colored is. And a lucky colored back in the day was somebody who had light skin and light eyes, bonus points if they were blue, and also had straight hair. And these are people who could either pass for white and so would in some cases pass for white. And then there were also people who, because of their appearance and being their closeness to whiteness, um, that proximity to whiteness that has given value to race and white supremacy, they would then be the people who would have various advantages. They would have economic advantages. It would be something as simple as whether you are the clerk in the front of the office or whether you are the tea girl in the back or the person sweeping. And, and it, it echoes that the American way of slavery and colorism, uh, light-skinned enslaved people were often in the house, the darker ones were in the field. And then also, it also had really social um, social advantages because if you were lighter, you were seen as having better value. And so you even had better marriage prospects. That's how this, how deep this went. And so I think what was interesting for me was, so we laugh about something as silly. It's, it's a colored stereotype to see women in rollers. You know, so you see us in our big colors. There are two pictures on the cover with women with rollers because of that decision that comes with the idea that you must wear your hair straight. Now, that's not just an aesthetic decision. It's a decision that says, it comes with respectability and it comes with acceptance. And in some ways, it's a memorial to the decisions that people had to make when they went into the classification office, the registration office. And those tests were so, you know, look at the word, they were so arbitrary. And yet they would define the destiny and trajectory of somebody's life. So, for example, you have people asking, how do I know that you are colored and not native, which is the word they used for black at the time. And they said, well, you know, the hair on my arms grows differently. Or they would say that I have straighter hair and the hair out of my head is not as coily. Or they would say things like, we eat rice and we do not eat bok. And we only speak Afrikaans at home and we do not speak English and we do not speak any of the native languages. And often what this meant was the apartheid historians will tell us, you know, separate but equal and that the, that the lines were quite defined, but they actually weren't. People loved, across, loved each other across the color line. They were friends across the color line. And so there was a lot more mixing in the apartheid government kid to acknowledge despite those laws. But when you went into that office and when you asked for your passbook or your ID book and you decided which code you will be, because you'll see in the book also that we have a copy of the codes of what each race had to carry. And so when you decided what that code would be, you would have to deny often a part of who you were, particularly if you had black family. You had to step away from them and you had to move away and say that I am not these people. I do not speak this language. I do not eat this food. And I do not know this woman who might be my ancestor. 
And you touched on something earlier when you're talking about the origin of your family. Um, and you spoke about your great great grandmother, whose story I find fascinating. And it's a very, very South African, a very colored experience when you walk into the houses of colored people and you see the photos on the wall. You will often see that the photos of the lightest skinned relatives are there. And that comes down to their proximity to whiteness. That comes down to the closer we are to white, the more social and economic advancement that we will see. But it also comes down to a bit of inherent self-hatred and an erasure of black culture. And what I loved about this was one of the chapters in which you go back and reclaim your black grandmother, uh, Mamila, who was abandoned by this German man. And so can you just tell us a bit about going back and also what? Because so many of the stories in this book tended to lean towards the stories of women. And we didn't plan it, but this became a feminist book. And I really love Mamila's story. So can you just tell us a bit about that and what that meant to you? Yeah, Mamila's story happened as the very, very last. It's not only at the end because of the way the story dealt. It's also at the end because it was literally the last thing that happened. I mean, I told about my father, who I interviewed right at the beginning of the book. And it took him on a journey where before his 80th birthday, he decided to take us home. And home for us, my father's side, has always been Freiburg, which is in the Northwest. And that's the town we've associated with our family. Our family is well known in the town. In fact, Theodore Dooms, this German grandfather, was at some point some big shot official in the town. But in fact, what we what we discovered is there's a place called Ditakwaneng. And my father told us for the first time, almost 80 years old, that Ditakwaneng existed and he was taking us there as a family. And the reason why it was so important is we, we'd heard my father talk about growing up kind of in farmland. So we just assumed Freiburg was very farmland before it was town. But in fact, it was a farm. It was a village, in fact. And Mamela, when Theodore left her for lighter prospects in Pretoria, he took on a white wife. She then made this homestead in Ditochmaneng, which is the Dooms homestead. And we went to go and visit the chief. And the chief, his eyes lit up when he heard that my father is a Dooms because he knew the Dooms so well. And it was Mamila who built that name and that reputation in that village. She built the homesteads of her children. She also got left by some of her children who were light and could pass for white in that homestead. But it was the homestead where my father first got forcibly removed as a child, even before the, the classifications. The first thing was a forced removal. And he remembers being forcibly removed from there while playing at the river with his white, uh, with his white friends. And he also then remembers the place that she had as the one who kept them and nurtured them and held them together and gave them a sense of identity. Yet I had not actually ever heard her name before I asked these questions. And so in our family, we spoke about Theodore Dooms all the time. There's actually a little book in one of the houses in Freiburg, in Auntie Margaret's house in Freiburg, that tells the story of Theodore. And I realized I had not even bothered to ask for her name, Mamila's name. Yet she was the reason why we could exist in the ways that we did. She was the one that gave my great-grandfather and my grandmother a steady foundation. And even my, my, my father credits her for that. But in our family, we had not, we had not spoken of her. And it gave me a deep, deep sadness. And at the same time, I was thinking about the reclamation stories of so many colored communities, and especially the Khoi and the San, because 
similarly to my reclaiming of and now looking into who Mamela was, Koyan San communities have done the same thing with Kritoa. And Kritoa was the first slave um, of Jan van Riebeek, or the first known slave of Jan van Riebeek. She was 12 years old, she was an interpreter, and she got to live in the house and all of that. But Kritoa, you know, marries a Danish white man in the colony, has these so-called mixed babies, as it were, and becomes the first person to have this kind of not this enough and not that enough that we've come to associate with coloredness. But what the Koyan San communities have started to do is start to reclaim Kritoa and reclaim her legacy and her place in the making of this very fraught South Africa. And I take from that the idea that it is really time that we do reclaim even the difficult parts of our history, even the broken parts of our history, and particularly the Black women of our histories that endured shame and rape and hurt and harm and hiding, all in the name of protecting white supremacy and particularly white men. For me, it just became such an important thing that as much as it's my father's story of reclamation, the most important thing that I reclaimed was my Black grandmother. And I want us to talk about, about reclamation but the rest of the book is about culture and that the reclamation story is about the culture that we created out of the pain. So there's a lot of pain in this book. We've cried a lot. We've cried way too much. But there's also things that we made out of that. Beautiful families, beautiful music, delicious food. And so we've said we want people to reclaim the full history. And so maybe if you can just, you, you did a lot of the, the culture chapters, particularly food and um, language. And so maybe just talk us through what you think reclamation of culture and history looks like in this book in terms of not the pain, but the joy as well. So for me, what has become a symbol of reclamation, and, and we've brought it in with the, whenever we've had a launch or a talk about this, is the humble cook sister. And so the cook sister, as we know it, there are two types of cook sisters. There's the one that is often served in white families. It is um, cold. It is smaller. It's very sweet instead of it. Also happens to be pale and ironically. But there's a what we call a cook sister. Something we drop the K for the often, particularly with the Cape accent. But up here, you know, the elders' accent is a lot harder. So we say cook sister. And so what that story tells me is about so round about. When the first enslaved people were working in the kitchens of the Dutch, they were trying out, you know, trying to figure out how to bring their flavors from home into this new kitchen that they were forced to work in. And remember, so these are people who came from Indonesia, they came from Malaysia, they came from Madagascar, but they also came from Angola, they came from Ghana, they came from Mozambique, and they were enslaved at the Cape, and many were forced to work in the kitchens. And so, we don't know too much about how the actual cook sister comes about, but we do know that there is an oily cooker, so an oil cake that is made at the time. And that somehow, and I, and this is where I use a bit of imagination because then I imagine that somehow this ingenious enslaved woman decides that she is going to make a little piece of home and takes the recipe of the oily cooker, which can be traced all the way back to Persia. And she adds spices to it. She adds spices of cinnamon and nutmeg, and she cooks it in star anise with, and, and what we call strobsit or syrupsit in, in a sugary syrup that is made again out of, of with 
little box of cinnamon in it and it just becomes this flavor bomb. It's also darkened and depending on there are certain uh, family recipe secrets, some people might use mashed potato to keep it together. Other people use citrusy taste. But then it's served warm and it's rolled into desiccated coconut. And you can find that in colored neighborhoods across the country on a Sunday morning, often sold in the churchyard. And so, you know, in as much as the cook sister is this wonderful little symbol of reclamation, there's another thing that we struggle with on a daily basis, and that's the Afrikaans language. And if you think about the history of the Afrikaans language and how it went from Dutch to Afrikaans, and then also the role it played in the oppression of during apartheid, it becomes a very difficult marker of identity and how colored South Africans will claim that. So, for example, what we know about the Afrikaans language is at the Cape you had a community of people who were enslaved coming from Angola, from Mozambique, from again from Malaysia, Indonesia. And so they weren't allowed necessarily to, some were allowed to keep their, their histories, but they weren't necessarily allowed to, to speak their languages. And so they had to find a way to communicate. And of course, they'd pick up, they'd pick up the master's language. But then they put in words and bring in parts of who they are. And so, for example, you have words like pisang, which is banana, but it's actually the word, it comes from Indonesia. And then similarly, the word for pirang. And we know this connection. It was very personal for me when I traveled to Bali and my aunt and I were speaking Afrikaans. And the woman who was at the hotel turns to us and completely understands what we're saying almost. And so... It was such a, you know, it was a reminder of just how far the slave trade had gone and also a reminder of how people have turned this into their own language and reclaimed, which, which was a tool of oppression. But what happens with the Afrikaans language is that round about in the early 20th century, late, late 19th century, the language changes from Dutch to Afrikaans and the wealthy families are speaking who are Dutch or high Dutch, but the poorer families are beginning to speak this creolized Dutch which we begin to call Afrikaans, which, you know, basically comes from Africa. And so what happens is, is that there's a project that is undertaken by C.J. Langenhofen, and it looks at the idea of how do we purify the Afrikaans language, because, because quite frankly, they didn't like the idea of little white boys sounding, and white girls sounding like the black women who were raising them, sounding like their nannies, sounding like the black people that they grew up around who were still seen very much as servants and lowly. So this purification process happens and it, it culminates in the Afrikaans Bible. But what that does is that it erases the role that people of color played in the making of this language. And so, you know, as we go through the apartheid era, colored people hold on to this language as well. But then at the same time, and I remember one of the activists was talking about, particularly during the United Democratic Front, to say after 1976, after seeing what the apartheid government did to black students over this language, over the use of this language, how did he then reconcile speaking that language? And I think it's something that people often go through even now. It's like, how do I still reconcile speaking this language that is a source of pain for so many people? People were tortured in Afrikaans. They find it triggering to hear the language. But for others of us, you know, who grew up hearing Afrikaans, you know, you think in it, you dream in it. You know, my grandmother's grandparents, my entire family still speaks the language. And so how do we take that back? How do you protest in that language? And it becomes a story of reclamation. And we're seeing it now in the present with the, um, the Cops Dictionary, where you're having a list of words that come from the community that are also like, it's again, it's a reclaiming of that formalization process more than a century later to say, we are reclaiming who we are. And I think that comes back to our arc of reclamation which carries throughout this entire book. 
where there is pain and there is sorrow, there is orphanhood and isolation and alienation, but there is joy and there is culture and that we are reclaiming that. So throwing back to you, Tessa, what does reclamation mean for you as we come to the end of this? For reclamation, I think we, we talk about reclamation in three ways in this book. Firstly, is reclaiming our histories. Secondly, it's reclaiming um, our our ability to self-identify, <laughs> to determine for ourselves not only what we call ourselves, right? And so many people think that by calling the book colored, we are enforcing, you know, the use of the word colored by everybody who apartheid called colored or slavery called colored. But in fact, it's it's us claiming our coloredness and giving people the freedom to claim their own cultural identity and claim their own identity in fullness. And so if people don't identify with the word colored because of its pain that it brings them or the erasure it caused them, then that's cool. But for me, particularly when it came to young people reading this book, I wanted young people, young colored people, to not only see themselves through a historical lens and where they came from, but to see themselves today. And so in the music chapter and in the chapter about womanhood and femininity, I do speak about young people and speak to young people as part of that. And the young people of this book tell us that there's a time and a moment now in which young people can start remaking what it means to be colored. And it may not look or sound or feel like what previous generations who have borne the name colored feel about it. It may not feel or look like what people who reject the term colored because of the pain that comes with it looks like, right? But it's still theirs. I often say this, that for my father, my father had a cultural identity before he was colored. I didn't. I came into the world and my cultural identity was colored from the get-go. So when you tell me to divorce myself from the word colored, it's really very jarring for me. And I can imagine even more so for my nieces and my nephews and young people who are colored. And so I write particularly in the book about women, um, a letter to colored girls in which I encourage them to be whatever expression of themselves they want to be in the world. But the last part of reclamation is our reclaiming our role and our space in the South African story. And this goes back to the beginning, I guess, as well, about why you and I, Lindsay, call ourselves culturally colored but politically black. Because part of reclaiming space in the South African story is reclaiming our space in the struggle against the anti or the, the whiteness the, and the white supremacy that created so much of what we think of South African history and South African um, society today. And claiming our space in the anti-racism that is required to undo all of that. And it's not just an anti-racism that is, you know, historical. Even the way our society is set up today with all of its inequalities is still deeply, deeply about the racism that made us get to the points that we didn't, that are so ugly about our history. But in order to do that, we need to be start coming comfortable as colored people, recognizing that we too are part of the oppressed people in the world that white supremacy created as a category, which is what blackness is. It is a category that white supremacy created in order to have someone to oppress. And we are part of those who were oppressed by racism. And in that sense, we are politically black because that was a political project of creating a group of people to oppress. And that means that when we look across the highway at people living in Dobsonville, if you're in Aldo's, or people living in Guguletu, if you are in Mitchell's Plain, or people who are living in Orlando, 
when you are in Nuwafsa. When you look there, you're looking at people who share a similar struggle to you. And the solidarity of that is what is required going forward as we reshape South Africa and break free of what the past has done to us. But in that, we don't have to be ashamed of the cultures that we've created. And that's really why we, we still emphasize the culture that coloredness is, the way of living and the life making we've done. Despite the pain, despite the shame, despite the hardship, we've still made joy. And so the reclamation is about all of that for me. I want colored people to read this book and see themselves. I want people who are not colored and don't identify with coloredness to read the book and have a much fuller view of who colored people are rather than what they are. But finally, for us to all use this as a moment to move forward and create a different future, knowing where we and stand now. I think now. we are doing that. And I think for the last, the book has only been out for less than a month. And what has been perhaps the most gratifying experience is that when we meet people, we, they are now free to have their conversations. They are bringing up their stories. I mean, you know, when we were at Open Book Festival or when we were launching here in Johannesburg, people coming to us in the line and telling their stories about their families. And that's what I hope that this book will do. And that's why we emphasized ordinary people's stories, because there is a freedom in telling your story. And it has certainly been for me a particularly liberating experience to explore what it means to be colored and then to take it back and explore for myself what it means to be colored. And I hope that that is the journey that our readers will go on and that they'll sit and they'll talk to their families across generations and talk to each other. So when we move into the future, when we take this old classification and we turn it into something to be proud of, what will it look like and how do we make it ours? Yeah, I mean, I think in closing, I'll quote your words from the book where you ask people to read this book with their heads and their hearts. And that's my appeal. I don't want everyone to agree with us, but I do want people to approach this book and the story with a large degree of open-mindedness and empathy. Empathy for people's stories that are in this book, but also empathy for our various views. Many people don't want to talk about coloredness because they're afraid of being shut down and somebody's going to tell them their views not valid or they're not revolutionary enough or they're not patriotic enough or they're not um, colored enough. And I just hope that we have these conversations with high degrees of empathy and compassion and grace for each other so that everybody's story and voice matters as we go forward. But thank you for answering that phone that day. Thank you for taking the call. Thank you for saying yes. And thank you for a beautiful journey of creating something I think is more special than I thought it could be. Thank you. And I think it, it comes back to that question when people ask me why colored people are so angry and what I've learned is that it's not that we are angry, it's that we are in pain. And so for me, that comes back to your question about compassion and empathy. So thank you for your compassion and empathy as we wrote this and as we put this together. So thank you. And thank you to PageCast. Thanks for listening to this episode of PageCast. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, please contact us at pagecastpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep reading and listening.